0: The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. The scripture this morning comes from Esther chapter 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of all the provinces were before him while he showed his riches and his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the Citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble and mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king has, had given orders to all the staff of this palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahim and Bitha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him.
1: Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshenna, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mirs, Marsena, and Mimucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. If you are between the ages of five and fifth grade, you may go meet our um, volunteer over there for children's sermon, thank you.
2: I can just feel your uncomfortability with how I'm going to deal with this passage. I can feel it coming off of you. Yes, King Exacerus is not the progressive that we would like him to be, um, but there are still things that we can learn from this passage. Uh, I want to set the tone for Esther before we dive in, uh, just so that you can kind of have a backdrop. Um, what's going on in Esther is that the, this is a true story. This is real history. And basically, it tells the people of it tells the story of the Jews, and this is 50 years after Cyrus decrees that they could go home. Okay, so this is 50 years after the Cyrus, they were in exile. Cyrus says, Y'all can go home after long and painful exile. But this story is not about the Jews who went back home. This story involves those who returned, who refused to return home. So these are the ones the Jews who were under his command, he says you can go home, and they're like, nah, we like life better here anyway. And so they barely show any faith, barely show any covenant loyalty, and they kind of live just like the people around them. And as they find themselves in the land of Persia, they are threatened with extinction and the promise of the covenant people on the brink. Okay, so you understand the, the people of God have been said they can go home, this group of people that we're going to learn about didn't go home and not because they were going to try and transform it from the outside, it's because they just didn't care that much. There's not that much faith left in this group of people. And so we're going to watch what God does through his power among a faithless people. So you've got this ruler Xerxes and he wants he's vain and he's jealous. He's powerful. His empire spans 127 provinces. And so basically, you have what seems to be the most powerful man in the world. And then you have the people of God. God's people will not even be seen or heard from in this chapter. So here's the question that Esther kind of puts to us. Will indeed God's people... Be put in this predicament of ruin as Jews throughout all the region with mass extinction. How will ruin be reversed to rescue this helpless people who have no king, no temple, no priesthood, no sacrifices, and are small and defenseless minority against a powerful mon- monarch? Do you get the point? Barely faithful people in a culture that is totally unfaithful and the people experience Seemingly no power at all. And yet, God is at work in the background. It's such a help to us. Because we tend to think that if God is on the move, He will move in powerful and big and headline ways. And that's what He will do. If God wanted to convert the whole world, He would show up in such a dramatic way way that everybody would talk about it and then all unbelief would go away. That God only does his things in big ways. What I want to tell you about Esther, it's so funny that it's in the Bible, is that it never uses the word Elohim or Yahweh. It's a story that doesn't have God in it. And yet we as the reader are supposed to conclude maybe he's still at work in the background when we can't see what he's doing as we look at our world of COVID-19 and racial and political unrest, maybe God is still at work in the background when we can't see what He's doing. Let's pray and ask God to bless our study of His Word. Lord, would You have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank You and I praise You that you are in control even when I think I'm in control. I praise you and I thank you that you're in control when I think no one is in control. Would you fill us with hope? Just about everything we're comforted by, that we enjoy, that seems normal to us, has been messed with. And I pray that you would use this old story to remind us that you are still in control. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Aaron and I have watched our way through The Queen's Gambit. I don't know if you've seen it on Netflix yet, but it's the story of this woman, this little girl who finds herself to be a prodigy in chess. And she's actually an orphan, and she gets adopted by this woman and her husband, and the woman's very interested in her, and the husband's sort of indifferent to her altogether. But it's kind of about her story walking through, learning about how good she is at chess. It reminded me of the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer. Some of y'all might not have seen it, but it was a similar story. It's a story of this little boy who all of a sudden starts beating all of these people in chess. And you start to realize this kid's really got game and he's going he's gonna to beat opponent after opponent after opponent. One of the scenes in Searching for Bobby Fischer is, is that uh, he's being taught by Ben Kingsley this powerful, awesome actor, and he's being taught by him. And the kid is trying to think through what the next move is and what, and Kingsley keeps saying, do you see it? Can you see it? And as he asks, do you see it? Do you see what the next move is? The kid's looking at the pieces to figure out what the next move is. And finally, Kingsley looks at the boy and just swipes all of the pieces off of the table. And he says, now do you see it? And the boy just pauses to focus without even the pieces on the table about what happens next. It's a picture of what it feels like to live as God's people in this world. There's all the pieces that we know that we're used to, that we're comfortable by, where we know it can be predicted. It's all been swiped off the table, and we're sort of looking at this empty board going, I have no idea what God is doing. I have no idea what to predict. I have no idea what's coming next. That's what this story is in Esther. The pieces have been swiped off of the table. These are the unfaithful Jews who have hung around under a totally pagan, evil king who's all about himself. There's no temple. There's no sacrifices. There's nothing that you're used to in the Old Testament of keeping people faithful to God. In fact, there is no faithfulness to God. And yet through all of this, Rather than conclude that, man, things are totally out of control, there's nothing left on the board, Esther is calling us to look closely and go, do you see it? Do you see how God moves? Even when you don't understand it, can you see it? How about in your life? When you long for a baby and can't have one. When you love your job and you're dismissed from it in a way that you don't understand when you want more from your marriage but it seems cold and distant, when you want to lay down an addiction and yet you just keep running back to it, it's easy to conclude that I'm not in control, God's not in control, no one's in control. And the Scripture tells us to breathe, to clear the table, and to see that maybe something else is still going on. That's where we find the story of Esther This morning. When your family is struggling. When someone you love is sick. When work seems miserable. You have to talk yourself into going. When you feel like Jesus has called you to something. And you followed Him. And then you can't seem to find Him anywhere. That's when you look and try and see. The untraceable hand of God. Our worthy king is writing a grand redemptive story that trumps human power and is often hidden from human eyes. That overcomes human power and is often hidden from human eyes. Let's look together at the text and see what God is telling us. So the first scene, there's three scenes in this text. The first scene is the banquet. The self-serving and indulgent, indulgent king. Let's look down in the text. It says this. Verses 1 through 8. I'm going to just read highlights of it. Now, in the days of King Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, three in the year third of his reign, and he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. It says this while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness, for many days, 180. He threw a six-month-long party. To do what? To display the riches of his own glory. He made sense of his life by putting himself at the center of it and having people stare at him. People want to be like him. People to be impressed. The whole text is supposed to read to you kind of funny. It's, it's the author of the story kind of uh, giving you the... He's got a smirk on his face as he's telling you the details. Saying this guy is overcompensating. He's, he just does marble pillars, couches of silver and gold, fine stones, wine is flowing. Six month long party. You're supposed to be impressed by the wealth and also kind of laugh at him. And go, all this power and all this lavishness, and we know he's not the hero of the story. We haven't even gotten through the story yet, and you know this guy isn't the hero. So it's supposed to kind of poke fun at all of the things that we find comfort in, we find meaning in. There's a story where John Mayer, he wanted to be a real rock star, not just not just a passing pop star flash in the pan. Mayer wanted to be a real rock star, so he asked Eric Clapton to be his mentor. So he goes to Clapton's house across the sea, and he's spending time with Clapton, and Clapton and here talking and hanging out, and Clapton eventually mentions to him, and he says, hey, um, what, so what's your favorite sports car that you own? And Mayer says, sports car? I don't, I don't even have a sports car. And Clapton, his mentor, one of the most famous rock stars of all time, says, what do you mean you don't have a sports car? It is mandatory for a rock star to have a sports car. Mandatory. Right in that moment, John Mayer picks up his phone, calls a Porsche dealer in New York, sight unseen, bought a $134,000 Turbo S just because it was the rock star thing to do. In other words, if this is what people of the identity I want to be like, that's how they act, then I'm going to do that. Lavishness. And we're like that more than we think we are. Who is it in your head that you look up to? And I don't mean in a mere moral, spiritual sense. Who's the kind of person, mom or worker or dude or CrossFit girl or whatever? Who's the kind of person that you're like, man, I want that person's life. The choices you're going to make in your life, the thing that you're going to get really good at is doing the things that that person does. We're not so far away from this king. And this king thinks if... if I'm supposed to be important all over the world. I'm gonna let even the poor people, I'm gonna let everyone experience the lavish wealth. And he's doing this because it's about him. It's so self serving. It says in verse 4 that he's doing this to show his splendor, not to be gracious or generous. He's doing this to display his splendor and his majesty. We all long to live in these beautiful restoration hardware houses drive sleek, eye-catching cars, and have clothes that stand out, all because we're building our kingdom. So let me ask you, what are the ways in your life that you're building your kingdom? Is it through your body? Is it through your house or your clothes? Is it through your degrees? Is it through your career? Is it through social media where you want all of us to believe that you're living a better life than we could all possibly imagine? Somebody recently wrote an article about celebrity pastors. And this guy is, who wrote it is not even a Christian. And he mentioned celebrity pastors by name, which I'm not going to do. His name is Ben Sixsmith. But he says this, I'm not religious. I'm not religious. So it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if, this is an unbeliever. Still, if someone has faith worth following, I feel that their belief should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. I feel their faith should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Friends, our generation is guilty of this. It's because we believe in a huge gospel of grace, but it also this sense of we want to be cool, we want to be relevant, we want to uh, be progressive. And so we think that we can be, look exactly like the world and just think one thing different and all of it's okay. That's what the people in Esther, the believers in Esther, they just wanted to be like the people. And we end up wanting... To look like them, instead of hope, by our influence, that they might begin to look like us. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if you want to be, if they want to become more like me. Now all those things aren't wrong in themselves, the, the beauty and the money and the reputation. It's just that they're when they're to, intended to preach a gospel. They're intended to preach a gospel that says, look at how we have it together. Look at how we're just like the world around us. They distract us from where we should find our real identity. Friends, convictingly, even ministry can be this way. Even pointing people to Jesus can become a way of building your own identity apart from Jesus. I used to work at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. It's a fabulous church. And one of the pastors there is a guy named Joe Novenson, and he's famous throughout the country for his love for his people, for the letters that he writes, for the sermons that he preaches. And at one point, I got called away to go to a discipleship pastor's conference. So it's all these young guys like me sitting around a table sharing their best ministry practices. And very quickly, it became evident that everyone wanted to know what my job was like because I worked with Joe Novenson. And so they want to know how often I get to preach and what's Joe like in person and all of these things. that they, they, How team preaching goes. How many services do you guys have? And, and the whole table started to sort of aim themselves at me in the conversation. And I was basking in it. I was like, fellas, fellas. I'm just like you. I put my pants on one leg at a time. But when my pants are on, I go to work at Lookout Mountain Press with Joe Novenson. Even ministry. This thing that's supposed to be about pointing attention and glory to someone else, Jesus, that we can use to invert it on ourselves. And we know that happens in each one of our own life. This king exists for his own pleasure. You see it. He wants others to see his glory. Now I want you to watch this. Compare that kind of king to King Jesus. Lavish and wasteful and selfish to King Jesus. For you know, 2 Corinthians 8-9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, for your sake He became poor, so that through His poverty you might become rich. Esther is calling us to come to a better banquet. Jesus is the servant king giving a sacrificial banquet. Xerxes spent all his money for his own name. Jesus became poor for your sake. Xerxes wanted to show off his splendor and majesty. Jesus laid down his splendor and majesty so that he could come for you. Xerxes threw a six-month-long party and yet the father throws a party for the prodigal son who comes home. I am tempted as you are tempted to keep up with the world around us and to look like the world around us but just think one thing different. And he's saying, let that one thing different about you drive your lifestyle. Not because you have to, but because it can. So you see the scene of lavishness of wastefulness. And then the second scene is the defiance of what happens when worldly power is blocked. Look with me in verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, with the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded his servants, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. In the world in which we live in the power structures in which we live, when someone has power and that power is blocked, you will see rage come up. Instead of going to his wife and pursuing her like a man, he sends seven people to go get her. His, he's sort of acting as if, my life motto, everyone exists for my pleasure and for my reputation. And the king is embarrassed because he gets told no. No. And no one tells him no. What happens in your world when your power, or let me use a different word for you because you might not use power, when your control over a situation or over your work or over your household is blocked? If you want to know what your idols are, as Keller says, look at what makes you angry. If you want to know what your idols are, look at what makes you angry because when your control is blocked, it will demonstrate what it is that you're protecting with your control. Let this ask you, what kind of husband are you? What kind of wife are you? What kind of boss are you? What kind of worker are you? What kind of friend are you? What kind of person are you? Some of you are sitting there thinking, yeah, but trust me, I don't have any power or any control. But maybe you're there so aware of how little power and little control you have because you long for it so deeply. We want control, and when things get in our way, it stirs up anger in us. It doesn't always come out as simple, ugly, loud rage not for me. I'm a pastor. I can't do that. I'll be out of work. If every time one of you disagrees with me, if it comes out as silly, loud rage, but if somebody marginalizes me or embarrasses me or offends me, I wouldn't call you names because that's not good for me. Instead, I'd smile at you and act kind, and in my heart, I'd consider you no one. I'd try to build my life in such a way that I can live around you how does it come out in your life when your kingdom is challenged? Is your kind of power the power that costs other people their dignity? For you to flex your muscles, does it mean someone else has to lose? So in application, let's just talk through a couple of things. Who do you have authority over? Who do you get to plan for is another way of saying it. Who do you get to plan for? In what ways do you put yourself ahead of them as you plan for them? What do you do when someone challenges your plans? Why does their challenge upset you? And I want to show you one more cool thing in this text in this part portion. Think about what the people far away from Xerxes thinks. If you're far away and you've heard about this king who's thrown a 6-month party for even the poor people, you're like that dude is generous. That dude is awesome. That's the kind of guy I want to be around. And yet, his own wife feels exploited. If the people at a distance think you are kind and gracious and patient and generous, ask yourself, what do the people in your home think? What do your kids think? What does your spouse think? It's a spiritual s- sign of spiritual sickness. That those who are, think well of you are far away when those closest to you are afraid of you. Come to a better king. Xerxes uses his power to take what he wants. Jesus gives up his own power to give others dignity. He humiliates himself so that we won't have to be humiliated. He lays down your life, his life for you, so that you can draw near to him. And lastly, where is God and what is he doing in this text? His name isn't mentioned. The people of God's name isn't mentioned. Where is God and what is he doing? An embarrassed, drunken king gets angry and throws a temper tantrum. Where is God in all this? And as I mentioned earlier, Esther's the only book that doesn't include Yahweh or Elohim. No one prays. Did you hear that? No one prays. No miracles. God seems absent. And our temptation is we tend to think and feel that God is absent. Or we think that God is present and just doesn't care that much about us specifically. So let me ask you, does God feel absent to you sometimes? Sometimes. Doesn't it just feel like maybe he once cared, but now he's kind of checked out because of your disloyalty to him? This king acts in ignorance and evil and anger, and yet God will use this to rescue his better, rescue his people. What this is saying is that when you can't see the moves on the board, trust. The God's character who you know is in the background. Come to a better story. Come to a better story. Xerxes gets gets his friends together to figure out how to destroy someone that embarrasses him. And Jesus planned to rescue the ones that walked away from him. Xerxes thought hurting others is the way to get revenge. Jesus surrendered himself to be hurt so that we never will be. Friends, most of waiting most of life is waiting on a king you can't see. Trusting in a larger story that you can't understand and walking a path feeling like you are wandering. It is not this sense of I know what's happening now and I know what's happening next and it's going to feel very good and smooth and confident. It's trusting a larger story you can't understand and walking a path even when it feels like you're wandering. Most of you never know about how God took care of you in the past. All the things that he did. You'll never know about most of those things. Imagine the irony of God that he's constantly meeting our needs and we're unaware of them that every once in a while we actually are aware of our needs. And we conclude, now we're in trouble. Even though you've been taking care of us long before when we didn't even know what those needs were and meeting them before we could even feel them, now we're in trouble. Some of us are so busy looking for the spectacular in your life that you're missing the normal day-to-day ways that He's meeting your every need. Let me tell you a secret. You will never see the way that He will meet your needs in advance you will never see the way that he will meet your needs in advance and you will rarely see it in hindsight but you know looking at the empty board that you know the one that's playing you know the one who knows what's best because he gave his son for you on the cross and i want you to be clear about this It could be, oh, that's why God's doing what He's doing. Esther, that's supposed to explain to us why God is doing what He's doing so that we'll really know. Let me tell you this. In Esther and in Job, don't let that bother you. We want to be a safe place for kids, whether they're oohing and ah on and being held by their mamas, or whether they're running around the room. My kids are most of the noise, I promise you. What it means is God does not explain himself in Esther and God does not explain himself in Job. So if you're sitting there thinking, I can deal with the cancer, I can deal with the COVID, I can deal with the infertility, I can deal with the infidelity, I can deal with the addiction, if I could just understand why, God says I'm not going to give you why. Because then you won't need faith. Then you won't have to cling to me. So don't wait around for why. He's on your side. Let me say this and then we'll close with a story. Esther, who's this marvelous queen, this marvelous strong woman that we're going to find in the Old Testament, she's not mentioned in the first chapter. All of this is going on. All of this is setting the backdrop and she's not mentioned in the first chapter. So let me say this to you. Sometimes your story and how God will use your story isn't mostly about you. Sometimes your story and how God uses your story isn't mostly about you. So when you're suffering, I want you to know at the backdrop that not everything is a personal attack from God. Not everything is a lesson, like at the end of a Full House episode where there's a there's a theme. There's a moral. Sometimes you'll never know that why you had to suffer is so that someone else in this room could keep showing up. To keep the faith. To keep believing even when it's hard because they're watching you. Sometimes your story has nothing to do with you. And there's comfort in that. You all know that I struggle with depression and anxiety and it's a constant battle for me every day. I take medicine for it sometimes I do better sometimes I do a little worse there are other loved ones in my sphere one in particular that has even a more serious more difficult psychological disorder one that carries it all the time and it's imposed itself on my family it's imposed itself on my life and more times it's imposed itself on my marriage it's imposed itself on my parenting this person's Psychological disorder has imposed itself upon me and I used to believe in the heart of hearts if I could just get this thing to go away, I'd be running on all cylinders. And yet if I'm honest, what's true is that that thing that I feel like has imposed itself on me has shaped me, has stirred me, has built me into what God has wanted me to be. So I ask you this, what are the things that you think are an imposition on your life that God is actually using for you to bless others? Let's pray. Jesus, we're constantly looking to understand the pieces on the board. Most of the time they've been knocked away. Would you help us to trust your heart even when we can't see what you're doing with your hands? Would you help those in the room who are despairing? Who think there's no way out? Who feel really trapped? Would you help remind them this morning that there's hope? Would you remind them that God's people's faithfulness is never why God is faithful? God, we ask that you would teach us to live for your kingdom and for your king instead of the kingdoms of this world. Lift our spirits, we ask in Jesus' name that we pray.